listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. When I was first introduced to Zen meditation... And someone told me that I was going to be actually awakened at 4.15. I was going to get on a cushion in the Zendo, meditating by 5 a.m. And then at 5.40, we would break for 10 minutes of walking meditation. Nice break, right? And then get back on the cushion for another 40 minutes. And then after that 40 minutes go through the service, about 25 minutes of chanting. I was less than thrilled. (laughs) It didn't sound to me like much of a uh, a vacation. Uh, Certainly didn't sound like a very intriguing enterprise. Um, And when I first started, Pretty much everything past 10 minutes was torture for me. 10 minutes was okay because I could manage that. I could manage 10 minutes of just sitting still because I could still think, even though I thought I wasn't thinking. I know that sounds weird, but I thought that I wasn't thinking. I thought I, was, I wasn't still. There was a very subtle churn and burn going on in my mind. And it wasn't until uh, several days of this that I realized the importance of that discipline, of having that fire underneath the tenderness of meditation. Meditation is a very tender act. It's just the full expression of yourself in stillness, without words without sound, without movement. It's just this. That in and of itself appears to be very tender. And yet, boy, does that take some guts. Because what starts happening is there's almost an ignition within the core of who we are a fire gets lit that starts to burn away the things that aren't important. It starts to burn away our relationship to our thoughts of what meditation should be, of what enlightenment is, of what compassion should look like, of what wisdom sounds like. All that stuff started losing its footing because an authentic stillness practice leaves no room for that in us which feels separate. It leaves no room for boundaries. Meditation points us to our true home. It points us to that place which is perpetually at ease, in balance and the place that is terminally balanced, that is always, always, always balanced, 
is the place where there are no boundaries. No boundaries. There's no self. There's no other. There's just this. It's stillness. And so, once this uh, started to become, uh, at first it was like a felt sense of this, and then it was actually beyond perception. It started to actually inform consciously what was behind perception. It was as if this infinite expanse became self-aware through the experience that we call me. And it's available to everybody. It is not special. It's in fact what's always already there for each and every single one of us on the planet. And of course any extraterrestrials that might be there somewhere that we haven't accounted for, it still applies. <laughs> And I, I remember, just to get slightly philosophical and intellectual here, I remember what a significant uh, phrase Rene Descartes' cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. I remember that was a real huge thing for me uh, when I went through this big existential phase in uh, high school and early college because it really basically said, because... I can think, I exist. I exist because of this thing we call mind. Now, of course, with that translation, what Descartes has really given us is unenlightenment. Mind identification. I think, therefore, I am. That's sleep. That's delusion. That means we identify with our thought processes. We identify with our body-mind. And this is all there is. When in fact, every single one of us knows that there's more. We may not be able to conceive it, but the meditation practice points it out again and again and again. It was recently pointed out to me that if you translate it as cogito ergo, I think, therefore I am, that's problematic. But if it's consciousness, therefore I am, I have consciousness, therefore I am, then suddenly Descartes becomes a guru. Consciousness is our awareness of awareness. And if we can rest there, then, yes, consciousness, therefore we are. So before you write Cartesian philosophy off altogether, just remember it depends who's translating. So I wanted to uh, belatedly honor Rene Descartes tonight with a quote that I thought was uh, apropos. Because I think in his own way, he was really on the path. He said, uh, I will now close my eyes. 
I will stop my ears. I will turn away my senses from their objects. I will even efface from my consciousness all the images of corporeal things, or at least because this can hardly be accomplished, I will consider them as empty and false. And thus, holding converse only with myself and closely examining my nature, I will endeavor to obtain by degrees a more intimate and familiar knowledge of myself. Wow. You go, Renee. <laughs> I mean, he nails it. What he's basically saying is, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to be absolutely still. I'm going to take the remote control and click off to my senses and just be. And in this process, by degrees, I will develop a more intimate and familiar knowledge of myself. Yes, you will. You will get to uncover your resistances. Just like for me, it was, don't make me sit for more than 10 minutes. I can manage 10 minutes. If you make me sit for more, I'm, I'm going to go nuts. I'm going to fidget. I'm gonna, and I did. It was as if something was going to explode in me, and I could actually feel tension in my face. Observing that is developing a more intimate knowledge of yourself. And to bring Muhammad into this, he who knows himself knows God. A more intimate knowledge of ourselves helps us uncover the always already abiding presence of God. So how do we get there? The Quran says, do not shout thy prayer publicly, nor yet speak it in low, in secret, but seek between these a middle way. The Buddha would have been proud. Seek between these a middle way. Seek between these a middle way that actually defines balance. As we start our practice, this middle way looks like intentionality. I want to, my intention is to, is to have a, a disciplined approach towards some type of sitting practice, but not get too caught up in it. You know, but also not avoid it. That's, that's middle way. And then as we progress, 
we recognize, ooh, lots of resistance is coming up. Okay? I don't want to give in to that resistance, but I also don't want to ignore it. And then as our practice heats up a little bit more, we can kind of get through that. We recognize this effusive, effulgent, unmanifest stillness that is always already present and it is positively blissful. The middle way there is to not stay there. It's to not get caught up in that and not avoid it, but become intimate with it. We become intimate with our openness. We become intimate with our resistance. We become intimate with all about us that thinks that it's awake. We start to recognize various aspects of ourselves and we develop a relationship to mind and a relationship to body and a relationship to time that is one of total acceptance and openness. And from that place, and here's the key, from that place of acceptance and openness, we act and engage in the world. From there, we cannot help but become the change we wish to see in the world because there's no division there. There's no this way or this way. There's only the middle way. And we are not only walking it, we have become it. And there's a great way to not become that middle way. There's several, but the one I really kind of wanted to key on tonight was the sense that we are a seeker. If we're always seeking, we're going to be looking for the middle way in exactly the wrong spot. The middle way is non-seeking. The middle way shows up when there's non-seeking. Seeking always implies separation between us and the answer, between us and the philosophy, between us and the faith, between us and God. As long as we are separate, perceptually, from spirit, we will forever be bound by that in us which is contracted, that in us which we call egoic. And when we are there, there is no rest. We can, however, watch ego begin to take over the experience. This happens very easily in hyper-intellectualized uh, practices where ego suddenly interprets and then engages in what it perceives to be awakening. And the sad news for ego is whatever it perceives as awakening is exactly not awakening. 
I'll say this another way. Whatever your perceptions of awakening are, are not awakening. This applies to me too. All of us. Whatever our perceptions of enlightenment are, are absolutely, precisely, 100% not enlightenment. So where does that leave us? That leaves us with a very, very interesting dilemma. We either continue on the path of thinking our way towards awakening, which will perpetually fail, or we recognize the models, maps, and signposts that have been set out for us saying, don't do that. <laughs> Easier said than done. And maybe the best thing to do is to just keep going and going and keep crashing into the wall. Keep putting your thumb on the proverbial nail of enlightenment and beat on it with a hammer until we decide to move it out of the way. We can do that. <laughs> but the shortcut, that is the stupidest metaphor. I don't know why I use it, but anyway. <laughs> the shortcut is to stop. Stop. Sit down. Be quiet. Be still. This will prevent ego from managing the experience because in stillness, what reveals itself? Ego. All things reveal themselves against the backdrop of stillness. So the sooner we can actually begin to incorporate a stillness practice that goes beyond 10 minutes, if you can, the sooner you bring that practice into a community where there is what we call you know, autonomy or agency or, or selfhood and a collective intention of other selves brought into one space, it begins this process. It acts as a catalyst to this whole thing. Opening occurs very naturally from this place. And it prevents, over time, can prevent ego from wearing the robe. Ego cannot wear the Buddha's robe. It thinks it fits. But it would be like an ant cloaking itself in the majesty of the AIDS quilt and saying, yeah, this works. It's that extreme. It's that beautiful. And so it's not so much about what we learn. It's about what we endeavor to unlearn. It's about not being kicked too far this way or too far this way. But it's about recognizing 
infinite balance, total steadiness, equanimity in all cases by practicing, practicing for more than 10 minutes. When you spoke about um, enlightenment being exactly what we don't think it is, or something like that, something like that. I think I said whatever you think enlightenment is, it's not. Is not, right? Um, I think. <laughs> <laughs> then I wondered about how love fits into that. Do you think love? No. What? Did, hold the mic up there. Wait, no. You don't. <laughs> What's your experience of love like? Um, it just kind of washes over me or takes over the me. Mm -hmm. Maybe is it? It's bigger than me. It's a surprise mm -hmm. sometimes to me. It's always there. Mm -hmm. It gets let through. Right. You just answered your question. Ah, oh, shucks. Mine's a little bit more of a technical question. When I'm meditating, I'm, I'm not meditating with my eyes open. So if I wanted to meditate 40 minutes, for example, for example, we meditate 40 minutes. Do you watch the clock? You mean when I'm sitting here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. At about minute 38. You, you tend to look. It's seven breaths per minute. Are you counting? You just do at that speed. Okay. I'm off sometimes, you know. Tonight we we're, we cut it short because, sorry to burst your bubble if you thought you totally studded out there, but uh, we cut it short a little bit tonight um, because we have an open board meeting. Uh, but for the most part... Uh, I find that my timing's pretty consistent. No. Okay. Well, I meditated this morning, and I find that I meditate very consistently 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why I stop at that moment mm -hmm. and look at the clock or, or say I'm, decide that I'm finished. And I almost inevitably, it's thirty minutes within a minute. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I don't watch the clock. But I was wondering if you, if you actually looked at the watch. Uh, yeah, I mean there are times and times that I do. Uh huh. Uh, I'm uh, meditation is like a golf swing. It's always changing. You have to you you you. It's it's bottomless. It's endless. And so the quality of my meditation goes through fits and starts relative to the fact that I've already been on a cushion for, I don't know, 10,000 hours. So just like I remember watching this thing uh, on 60 Minutes that where Tiger Woods was talking about how he, he changed his golf swing because he wanted to get better uh, as best as I can 
there is an intention to continually deepen my practice. And sometimes it works in ways that I never could have imagined, never could have. And other times, I really, really struggle. So it's a beautiful thing. It, it doesn't end. Well, I could say you're not alone. You're <laughs> Actually, no one is alone. <laughs> well, yeah. That's true. Yeah. So that the non-seeking, how do you get past in your mind if you want to push back? And mine's 20 minutes. If mm -hmm. I want to get past that, it ends up feeling like, okay, no pain, no gain here. <laughs> I've got to push on. Right. And I wouldn't do it if I weren't seeking. Right. Okay. Except there's something bigger than a seeking mind that is pushing you. There's something bigger than your mind that's pushing you. There's a felt sense of something larger, and it's not conceived. It washes over us, right? It fuels it, okay? Now, allowing that to express itself is going to allow the stillness to go past 20 minutes. 20 minutes may be perfect, 10 minutes for that matter, despite the fact you know that's what I was yammering on about. Might, might be perfect, but what you want to continually do is keep the heat turned up. You constantly want the heat turned up. So if, if you're kind of stable at 20 minutes, go to 25. Try that for a few weeks, a few months, a few years. And then when you feel stable there, go to 30. Go to 35. Go to 40. And at that point, at 40, it's an arbitrary number. You might do it differently. I mean, there's some tradition. I, I've been in one particular meditation center. They did a, an hour. And I grew to really, really enjoy that. It took some time, <laughs> literally and figuratively. It took time. But to continually keep heat on your practice is what allows for there to be two aspects to your work. We sometimes equate the practice to the sword of Manjushri, who cuts through the veils of delusion with this sword. And you can't have a sword unless you've got steel. You have to have steel within you, a straight spine within you to do this. But you can't hold that unless you've got the malleability of a handle, something that has been carved and shaped so that you can wield it. So you need that which is pliable and flexible with that which is absolutely sharpened, tempered by fire. You need to have both those things to have that balance. The deep balance comes from having, if for instance, you tend to wish to have kind of a, you know, the cuddly, practice, you want to feel good, okay, then the antidote for that is to, you need to stiffen up, okay, and if you're one of these, you know, rigid, 
you know, I do everything at this time. I do, you know, whatever. Flex a little. Soften up. Because if you don't have a soft heart and a soft mind, this will go nowhere. If you don't have a straight spine, this will go nowhere. It'll only be an exercise that will keep the habitual inertia of egoic dominance in our consciousness spinning. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Okay. So if you're comfortable with your time frame now, um, and regular, mm-hmm. maybe not rigid, mm-hmm. um, but consistent daily, yeah. And maybe not a straight spine. I'm not sure if that was literal or if that was... It's more, f- more figurative, okay. but it's helpful. Right. Um, so, all the other... What do you do in your practice to turn up the heat? In your sitting? Sit longer. So go to an hour instead of 40 minutes. Are you at 40? Mm-hmm. Take 10 minutes, kinhin. Sit for another 40. Double your practice. I promise, if any of you doubled your practice, really crazy stuff will start happening. I promise like the you that. The rest of my life will fall apart. <laughs> Where am I going to find would that? The, would, no, the, would the rest of your life no, not... I'm teasing. I'm would it fall apart or fall together? It'll fall together. Yeah. I understand. Now, now this is something that most suburbanites are going to write off immediately. In fact, if any of you come back next week, I'll be really impressed but the, because, I mean, the last thing you want to hear, you know, double my practice, that would mean I would, you know, even if you're going to 40, if you're going to 40, you know, turn it, turn it up more, that's immediately where we feel resistance. If, so. So time is, this, is the, main, the main turn it up element. Um, no, I, don't, I wouldn't feel comfortable going on record as saying time is the, is the oh. most important thing. What I, what I do feel that, I mean, for you it might be more time. If you don't think that that's going to turn up, turn up the heat to your practice, how still are you during those 40 minutes? Concentrate on your breath, perhaps. Okay? If you're all there, if it's all good, then my recommendation is be patient. Continually turn up the heat on your practice. Okay, so it's not just a mind exercise, and it's not just a body exercise, but it's actually an exercise of precisely what's beyond mind and beyond body. It's still in my in my time mm-hmm. in my time of sitting, um, and I look forward to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I I want it. I don't begrudge myself that. Um, but I am not, you know, I, I'm not totally awakened or I'm not without the work within the sitting of trying to not be interrupted by my mind. Right. I mean, Good. so it's Then you have all, stuff to practice. Pardon? You have, that's, that's exactly what can inform your practice. The time becomes arbitrary. Right, for in your case, right? right. Stillness. Stillness is... Let me go on record with this one. Stillness is what counts. 
Well, I've been using the I am still. Yeah. And stillness. It's a very, just very helpful practice. Focused on that. Yeah. But just I've, with this inhalation, I am still. With this exhalation, I am one with the all. And over time, stillness, no I. Notice, no I. Stillness, one with the all. Yes, actually, stillness works better yeah. for me. Great. Great. So just stick, stick with it. Stick with it. And don't, please, please don't misinterpret this, that you suddenly have to become kind of a Prussian meditator or something like that. Mm-mm. <laughs> Hope I'm not offending any of my Prussian pals, but you know, it's not that that's not what this is. That's not what this is. What this really is is a conscious apprehension of all that is quiet and all that is still, even in the face of great activity and great sound. Can we orient ourselves from there? And once we can, can we integrate that? so that all of these states that we might reach become stabilized. We walk with exactly the same gait, but there's something majestic and magical that radiates from us, and we can see it from everyone else. It is not a personal, self-centered thing. It's an impersonal opening to non-self in everyone else, yourself included. Blah, 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 blah. Thank you for coming. (laughs) 